Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started today, an announcement. This is podcast number 50, and I am shocked and amazed and very grateful that we got this far. As I've said a couple of times when I started this podcast just about a year ago, uh, I had no idea what I was doing, frankly, and that was probably obvious, but uh, no idea how long it would go, what it would look like, what shape it would take, and um, I'm really happy with the progress, with the viewership, and I am extremely grateful and appreciative to everybody who has listened in who has referred the podcast to other folks, who made comments. Um, again, just really thankful and uh, looking forward to the next 50. So now that that's out of the way, I spend <laughs> way more time researching Mexican cartels and reading things about Mexican cartels than I think any person should. And one of the things that we've talked about in the past that's difficult is information from the 70s, 80s, and even the 90s in Mexico is hard to come by. And what you do get tends to be more anecdotal than, you know, evidentiary. You have stories, you have fables, you have rumors, and... One thing that ends up missing from a lot of that information isn't necessarily what happened, but why. And when you start trying to piece together the whys, you figure out that a lot of times there either is no why, or there are a couple that are contradictory. And I've been thinking about those issues in connection with some of the events that have occurred between cartels to lead to where we are today, and some of the kind of former leaders of cartels, and looking at their rise and their fall and what that says about where the cartel system in Mexico is today. You know, trying to learn from the past to understand the present. And, you know, last week I mentioned, you know, somebody who had said, oh, the history of cartels is clear and, and consistent. And I think that that's just not correct and not accurate. And that there's a lot more subtlety there. And subtlety that's being lost. Um, Representative Crenshaw from Texas yesterday, I think, um, released a video kind of calling out the cartels, threatening new actions against the cartels, calling out El Mencho and El Mayo by name. And I, later on today, I've got a response to him going up on YouTube not that he's going to listen to it, but wondering if the nuances of the cartels and their structure are even being considered or thought about. And so look for that. But the point here is looking at some, some events that we think we know about 
and analyzing them with more information and and maybe more insight. So today, I want to look at and talk about Alfredo Beltran Leva. And in doing that, we're also going to look a little bit at the BLO, kind of how it formed, what happened to it. And again, we can draw some conclusions. Uh, and we'll also talk about the way Alfredo's trial in the U.S. or his prosecution in the U.S. was a harbinger of new things to come. So we'll talk about that at the end. So Alfredo Beltran, Alfredo Beltran Leva, born in La Palma, Sinaloa, Mexico, on January 21, 1971. Okay. Now listen to this. I have in front of me a chart of the Beltran Leva organization from the U.S. Department of Treasury, Office of Foreign Assets Control, under the Foreign Narcotics Kingpin Designation Act, dated uh, December 2009. So a credible source. It says Alfredo Beltran Leva, date of birth, January 21, 1971. That's what we said, right? It also lists an alternate date of birth of February 15, 1951. Hey, and an alternative date of birth that is 20 years different than the one that is uh, commonly accepted. As a side note, um, his brother, Arturo Beltran Leva, uh, has a date of birth of February 5, 1958, and he has alternative date of births in, listed in uh, June of 62, September of 61, and then a different date in September of 61, which proves my point. How in the, you know, when, when the U.S. government can't figure out when these guys were born, you know that records aren't that good. But because we know that Alfredo had generally been uh, mentioned as being the younger or the youngest of the three Beltran Leva brothers, Alfredo, Arturo, and Hector, we're going to go with, and I think we're probably right, saying he was born January 21, 1971, in Sinaloa. Ends up getting a a nickname, uh, El Mochomo, the desert ant or the fire ant, uh, allegedly because of his fiery temper, personality, etc. The Beltran Leva brothers and El Chapo Guzman knew each other probably way back at least into the 1980s and perhaps before. They grew up in basically the same area. They all were poor. They all lived in the countryside. They, um, the, the Beltran Labor brothers kind of got into the business and the same way El Chapo did, um, you know, first as, as kind of small time poppy producers then they became um, armed forces for larger uh, traffickers. 
They then uh, got associated with and became distributors for, again, these larger organizations, some of which traced directly back to uh, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo. Uh, El Alfredo himself apparently was very, very close to one of El Chapo's cousins. And it there's a report that when El Chapo was jailed in 1993, the Beltran Labor Brothers brought him uh, suitcases of money and also assisted in his escape in 2001. This is going to be a topic for a separate podcast, but there is a story. How substantiated it is, we'll talk about again at a different time. But there's a story that in 2002, El Chapo got together a number of large traffickers or factions 25 or so is the number that's generally um, bandied about. And that they uh, created a federation. A federation that really was under the Sinaloa cartel umbrella, but a federation which basically was a, uh, a compact of mutual interest with particular interest in... Number one, increasing their presence in the north of Mexico and driving out the Gulf cartel and at least pushing them, them being the Gulf cartel, further east. Uh, So that happens 2002. Beltran Leivas are present then. This federation... Um, doesn't really hold together like it was designed. Again, we'll talk about that later because uh, of disputes primarily with representatives or folks in the Juarez cartel and you know, eventually then leading to the CJNG. Um, according to DEA documents, through this period of time, um, you know, the the 1990s, the early 2000s, Alfredo, Arturo, and Hector um, are really at the core of and pretty vital and critical to the Sinaloa cartel's operations, right? They're not out in the wilderness. They're not there by themselves. They're not minor players. They are significant components of the Sinaloa, Sinaloa cartel. Uh, they apparently, according this again is according to some DEA documents, were said to be operating in eight states. They apparently had clandestine airstrips. They were alleged to have been very efficient in establishing relationships with security forces. And they are said to have been the primary traffickers of cocaine um, through Sonora into the United States, across the border with Arizona, 
under, again, the umbrella of the Sinaloa cartel. They also were heavy, heavily prominent, I should say, in the security apparatus of the Sinaloa cartel. And this is where Edgar Valdez Villarreal, La Barbie, comes in. So in about 2002, 2003, more or less, the uh, Beltran Leva brothers recruit Valdez Villarreal uh, to serve as kind of their head of security. And he was nicknamed La Barbie because uh, he had blonde hair. Apparently, he had what would be referred to as an American look. Uh, he also is pretty well known to have been a pretty brutal and effective uh, Sicario for the Sinaloa cartel and for the Beltran Leva brothers in particular. He initially was tasked with trying to take Nuevo Laredo from the Gulf Cartel and the Zetas. If you remember, the Gulf Cartel was kind of having issues holding on to Nuevo Laredo, which is such a key uh, trafficking point for a whole variety of reasons. And because of that, the Gulf Cartel recruited some special forces uh, from the Mexican military who became their armed wing and then became the Zetas. Uh, so La Barbie comes in working for Sinaloa cartel, but really working with the Beltran Leva brothers. He uh, tries to take Nueva Laredo from the Zetas. They're not successful in that, but... His reputation went up dramatically because he was able to match violence, you know, mano a mano with the Zetas in that fight for Nuevo Laredo. Okay. So this is going on. Then we end up in a situation. Here's where things get tricky for BLO and for uh, the, the brothers, particularly Alfredo. About 2007, apparently there became concern, rumors, gossip, whatever, of a BLO Zetas alliance. This is about the time that the Zetas were breaking away from the Gulf cartel. And there was an assumption or a belief by some that even though BLO and Zetas kind of had historically, you know, were not friendly. If you combined um, the Zetas control of some of the Eastern seaboard with the BLO's control of some of the Western coastline, man, that would be a powerful alliance. Also at this time, BLO creates an armed wing for itself, uh, the Pelones. And then there was one, a group 
that was dedicated to Arturo Beltran Leva called Arturo Special Forces Fuerzas Especiales de Arturo, FEDO, F-E-D-O. And there are pictures that you can find um, of these security folks wearing bulletproof vests that look just like security forces, just like you know you would see in the military with the FEDO ex- um, insignia on the back. We, if we preview ahead, there becomes a uh, a fissure between the Beltran Leva brothers and El Chapo and CDS, trying to understand why that occurred leads to a couple of theories. One is the one we just said, that you have this potential relationship between BLO and Zetas and that would kind of co-opt or, or force out or be outside the scope of CDS. There also are stories and reports that El Chapo and others in the Sinaloa cartel didn't like the way the Beltran Leva brothers conducted themselves. In particular, Arturo and Alfredo um, and La Barbie were often seen. Uh, their pictures were around. They were um, reportedly associating with actresses, you know, telenovela actresses, famous singers. They were at parties. They, you know, all of these sorts of things. Uh, you know, <laughs> you can decide for yourself whether it's ironic if, if El Chapo was, was concerned about that or not, given, you know, what happened with him. Um, apparently, of all the brothers, Alfredo was the one causing the most issues because he lived what some have referred to as a flashy lifestyle. And there is suspicion that that caused more of a, or caused a tension and a break between Alfredo and El Chapo. Things boil over in a big way in January of 2008 when Alfredo is arrested in Culiacan. Immediately after his arrest, there were rumors, lots of rumors, that El Chapo had handed Alfredo over to the security forces because he was deemed to be a liability. Arturo apparently was more than a little mad, wanted to have a meeting with um, El Chapo. And this is where it gets a little bit confusing, uh, at least for me. But what's widely reported is that right after Alfredo was arrested, El Chapo's son, Ivan, was released from jail on a, air quotes here, technicality. And that act convinced Arturo 
that Guzman El Chapo had given up Alfredo, right? And the quid pro quo for getting Alfredo was also the release of Ivan. So Arturo gets pissed. <laughs> and he has two main targets. He wants to go after El Chapo and El Mayo and anyone who supported them. And he wants to go after the police and the security forces that were on uh, his payroll. Um, El Chapo's son gets killed when he's walking out of a shopping mall in Culiacan. There's said to be as many as 20 gunmen. Um, one report says more than 500 bullet casings. And this is where things really go crazy. Um, there are reports that in May of 2008, there were 116 homicides in Culiacan, and uh, 26 of those were policemen. Federal government sends in more than 2,000 troops into Sinaloa, pre predominantly into Culiacan, to try to curb the violence. Uh, they, they're successful, at least to some extent in that regard, but um, this, you know, any, any semblance of a relationship between BLO and uh, any sense of a relationship between BLO and uh, the CDS, sorry about that, uh, it was gone, right? And as a result, that long rumored alliance between BLO and Zetas actually took place and for a little while seemed like it could present a challenge to the Sinaloa cartel. That fell apart for a couple of reasons. Predominantly because Arturo was later killed um, on December 16th, which happens to be my birthday. And there were other issues with respect to the Zetas and their leadership being uh, captured as well. You know, the Trevino Moreno brothers. And as a result, any internal discipline, internal structure, both in BLO and the Zetas went to hell. And as a result, neither one could sustain themselves, let alone in an alliance. And as a result, the BLO basically spiraled out of control and no longer exists except for certain pockets and certain remnants. And you can say the same thing about the Zetas and whether, you know, CDN has, has ties to the Zetas or La Linea, but as functioning cartels, they both no longer existed. So Alfredo, again, was arrested. Eventually, he was extradited to the United States. He was supposed to begin a trial in February of 2016, and he was represented by somebody by the name of Angel uh, Eduardo Balazaro. Uh, one more time. Angel uh, Eduardo Balarezo. Sorry. And 
Balarezo has a reputation. He's pretty well known. He was, uh, you know, a, a well-known criminal defense attorney. He comes out in the press and says, we're going to fight this. We're going to fight this. We're going to fight this. And then he doesn't, or they don't. Instead, on February 23rd, after there had been an extension of the trial date, Alfredo pleads guilty um, to participating in international drug trafficking operations. He is um, given a forfeit order and requested to pay $10 billion, which was the government's estimate of the profits he had generated through his drug trafficking operations. He was um, sentenced to life in prison on April 5th, 2017, and the actual forfeiture order wasn't $10 billion. It was only $529 million. Interestingly, Alfredo's defense then said, hey, hey, you know, you really should reduce the sentence to only 25 years because Alfredo accepted his role in providing assistance um, to his brother Arturo. He also said, by the way, I, Alfredo, was not the leader of the BLO, the Beltran Leva cartel. Really, really, it was my brother Arturo. He happens to be dead now, but I promise you it was him. Um, and as a result, the judge says, no, you're not going to go anywhere. Um, and your sentence isn't going to re be reduced because you don't accept responsibility for your actions. So he gets sentenced to um, the United States Penitentiary in Hazleton. And then in March of 2022, his lawyer sent a letter uh, to the appropriate people in the Bureau of Prisons asking for relief under what's called the First Step Act, which allows for, air quotes again, compassionate releases uh, in addition to reduced sentences for good behavior. Not really sure what happened here, but... Instead of being given a compassionate release and instead of an abbreviated or a reduced sentence for good behavior, in June of 2022, Alfredo was transferred from the Hazleton Penitentiary to Supermax in Florence, Colorado, where, ironically, he now lives with El Chapo Guzman. Now, fortunately for them, they're in their own cells 23 hours a day. And I don't think there's a lot of, of mingling that goes on at uh, Supermax. But that's it, it just, I don't know if ironic is the right word or not, but uh, it, it's, it's funny, if nothing else, that those two end up in Supermax together. One of the things that's really interesting about Arturo's case from a legal standpoint is he was one of the first major drug traffickers brought to the United States who didn't just roll over. Hey, usually they'd flip on each other. Now, 
It's interesting because you could say he tried to flip. He tried to flip on his brother who was already dead. Um, but he didn't give up anybody else, apparently. Even La Barbie ends up flipping on folks, right? Remember, we everybody thought that La Barbie was going to tr- um, testify at the Garcia Luna trial. He ended up not testifying, I think, or at least I could surmise that he was being held for rebuttal if the government thought they needed it. But even La Barbie has has flipped. So that becomes interesting. It also is interesting that Alfredo's lawyer, Angel Eduardo Balarezo, became El Chapo's counsel as well. And he was the one who, along with and Jeffrey Lichtman, who's a, another um, attorney, who, he was famous for having represented John Gotti. Um, but El Chapo becomes the first one to really go to trial. And then Garcia Luna follows him. And I find it interesting that you got you have the same counsel. And I'm not sure that the results <laughs> match up with the intention, right? Alfredo pleads guilty, but doesn't do it in a way where he shows remorse and accepts responsibility. So, you know, he gets a longer sentence. El Chapo denies um you know things he goes on trial he pleads not guilty and uh, let's face it th- he had no defense and as a result he's in supermax whining about his conditions on a regular basis and then you look at garcia luna he basically had no defense either now i understand you know having represented ruben zuno especially in zuno 2 we had no defense we had no records. We, you know, our defense was nope, weren't there. That's a that's a hard defense. It's even harder, I think, in the day and age we live in with CSI and you know all the the movies and the TV shows and you know how can you not get information? There's information on the web everywhere and all of that. But you know, Alfredo's trial marks. One of the first times somebody doesn't just flip. And then it goes to El Chapo and Garcia Luna and, and a few others. And, and I just find that interesting and wonder what the trend is going to be going forward. Especially if we think about somebody like Rafael Cairo Quintero and if he ever gets extradited. So... What was the point of all this? Well, in part, it was to talk about the BLO, to talk specifically about Alfredo, to talk about El Chapo, but also to think about the structure of the cartels now. CDS remains in power the federation you know that that carl or that el chapo tried to put together may exist may not exist um 
you know, there's all kinds of ways at looking at the structure of the Sinaloa cartel today. But we're going to continue to pull in from different places so that we understand not only what happened before, but how it impacts policy decisions today. And there are lots of threads that we can pull on in going in that direction. As always, if you think I've missed something, misstated something, let me know. As I said at the beginning, some of what I presented today is rumor. Some of it's innuendo. Some of it's gossip. Definitely, you know, nothing that that uh, you could put in a court of law and say these are, are definitive facts. If there are other areas along these lines that you think we should go, let me know, please. And with that... Uh, have a great week, everyone. Uh, we'll be back next week, and uh, it'll be April, and hopefully spring will be coming to the Rockies. All right. Have a good week. Thanks, everyone.